Well, I invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10 today, continuing our series in the sayings and deeds of Jesus that we're working through this summer, uh, turning uh, to chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which will be a familiar uh, passage or whether you uh, know where it is in the scriptures or not. It's one we call the good Samaritan and that perhaps we have heard of before, even if we haven't maybe read it in the Bible or heard a sermon on it lately. But uh, even with its familiarity, it's incredibly challenging. The words that Jesus has and ultimately points us to the love, the redemption that Jesus has given to us and how that love should inform a Christ like love that would be built in our lives and overflow to those around us in need. I invite you to stand uh, with me as I read aloud and you read along silently. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We just stand in honor and recognition of the power, the truth of God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may be seated. And let's pray together again. Father God, we uh, know that you tell us uh, the grass withers. The flower fades, but not your word. It stands forever. So we ask, Lord, that the powerful working of your word would show us uh, what love looks like and what it doesn't look like and that you would strengthen and equip us for your purposes and ultimately that we would see more of you, Jesus, and your love. In this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it's been a uh, few years now since I've uh, shared from up here about the incident in my college years when I had to be rescued from a 300-foot mountain face 
while rock climbing in North Carolina with my friend David. I won't tell the uh, whole story again, but at the point when my friend David and I realized that we needed some help, and if we didn't get some, that I was probably going to fall at least a hundred feet and maybe further, he uh, struck off on down the cliff edge that we were on, made his way because he was still in a safe spot, wandered the mile walk through the woods that we had taken to get from the uh, gravel parking lot up to that rock face, and then uh, drove his car another five miles to the nearest sign of civilization, which was about 20 minutes outside of Asheville. Several hours eventually went by as I clung to that cold rock ledge on that windy December, North Carolina day. And then they came through the woods. I could see them because I was up high. About 12 of them in all. And the lead climber, along with some other assistants on the ground, made his way up to where I was uh, when both of myself and the rescuer Uh, fell and dropped about 45 feet, only to be saved by a security line that they had put in the first thing that they did when they got there, I realized he was putting himself at great risk to come and rescue me. My friend David Norman, uh, who was with me, still likes to uh, tell about how when I was safely on the ground and with the other rescuers, that I opened my wallet and took what meager amount of cash that a college freshman carries around with him and doled it out as far as it would go to all of these rescuers. My buddy David finds that funny, but I was dead serious. When somebody rescues you, when somebody shows that kind of love, it's an amazing thing. After all, uh, those 12 guys, they didn't know me. I wasn't from their area. I had been stupid enough to get myself through foolish decisions climbing into a horrible situation. And, you know, moms, dads, I don't know how to read this. This is good or bad. But uh, my friend David and I, who was my climbing buddy, uh, both now have PhDs. So I don't know if that means that uh, people who generally have a decent head on their shoulders can still make really bad mistakes or, or if it means, hey, even if your kid makes some really bad mistakes, they might still be able to, uh, you know, to do something in life. Uh, either way, you want to read that. But these rescuers uh, came and helped me, even though I'd gotten myself foolishly in this situation. They probably had to leave their regular job. This was a volunteer uh, rescue group. They, I'm sure, had some activity that evening by themselves or with their families that they would have preferred to be doing. And several of them, as I said, put themselves at great risk to help. Ultimately, these guys going out of their way to help me are a similar picture to the one that we see in the so-called Good Samaritan passage. In both The rock climbing story account and the story of the Good Samaritan really ultimately point to Christ and to how he's come into our life, gone out of his way to offer himself up for us and rescue us. As I said earlier, that love of Christ that's sort of implied in this passage, that's the underlying water that flows through it, 
is meant to propel us to show this kind of love that Jesus is recommending. And you can follow along if you want to in the notes section in the back of your worship guide. I, I do think the main idea of this passage is that because we know that Jesus first loved us, showed us that incredible sacrificial love, not only putting himself at risk, but allowing himself to be his life to be taken, that we should heed his call to be those who love rather than try to limit or define who it is that we would love. As Christians, we're probably uh, not quite, if, if you've embraced the gospel, if you understand the work of grace, how that's supposed to relate to obedience to God, that our obedience is a response to the law, we're probably not in exactly the same position as this lawyer who approaches Jesus. But the fact is, we forget those things that we know and that we believe so often. And even if we don't forget them, a lot of times we just don't live them out. Take a look with me at these uh, verses here, especially 25 through 28. Let's talk a moment about the the lawyer. Uh, Anyone who does understand the, the comprehensive biblical message about grace, about free salvation offered through God's mercy, will look at this, especially verse 28, and maybe scratch your head a little bit. Jesus says pretty directly to this man after he affirms the summary of God's law, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, wait a minute. Elsewhere in Scripture, we know Jesus says crystal clear. John 14, uh, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. Places like Ephesians chapter 2. We read uh, the Apostle Paul saying it's by grace you have been saved it's through faith, not by works. It's a gift of God, not by what you've done. And yet Jesus seems to be telling this man, hey, if you obey this command, you'll be all right. As the lawyer continues to interact with Jesus, though, we see where the Savior is headed, where he's trying to take this guy. He wants to do what? the Lord often does with us, hold up a mirror of God's commands and his law, which is a reflection of God's perfect, holy character. And he wants to hold it up in front of the face of the lawyer and say, take a look. See, there's some blemishes there. There's some problems. There's some things that don't look right so that you can get the help and mercy that you need. He's trying to drive to that problem because even though the lawyer doesn't get it, Jesus knows that there's there's something wrong with the lawyer, just like there's something wrong with us. There's a, a corruption, a virus in the, the iOS system of our spirituality, if you will. There's something that's not working right in the program from birth. And so ultimately, a lawyer, just like us, never really in and of himself can fully worship God the way he's supposed to and never really love his neighbor and the lawyer, just like you and me, not only neglects or fails to do those things, but often would turn away from God and turn away from the needs of our neighbor. But the lawyer, although spiritually in the dark, if we track with him, he is, after all, a lawyer. And so he wants to figure out how can this happen within the confines of the law? Look with me at verse twenty nine says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? What's going on there? Well, I like what uh, 
W.C. Fields, the comedian from a number of years ago, said, he said, I've spent my whole life searching through the Bible for loopholes, for loopholes. The lawyer's looking for a loophole. Maybe he's thinking in his mind, if he's honest with himself, okay, uh, I know I don't really love God with all that I am, all my heart and my soul and strength. I don't do that really even for one day, let alone for my whole life. And I don't really love my neighbor as myself. But maybe, maybe if I can redefine this word neighbor, tweak it a little bit, adjust the statute about the neighbor and get it zeroed in small enough, I can maybe at least achieve that. He wants to, like we often want to, avoid having to really admit I'm broken, I'm lost, I'm desperate, I can't be who you want me to be, God. I need your mercy, I need your love. The lawyer doesn't want to come to that point. So he wants to redefine, and we hardly even need for the passage to tell us that he was desiring to justify himself. You can understand it. He wants to ask, who's the neighbor? Who do I need to serve? Give me a couple of people and I'll go take something by to their house or I'll go see what they need because I can manage that. And Jesus says, no, no, you've got this all wrong. And as much of uh, a litigator as that uh, lawyer is, uh, Jesus, if you will, puts uh, Alito and Scalia and Thomas and the other six to shame with his own uh, understanding of things. And he does it by flipping the whole thing on its head. Again, we've probably read this passage before, but it can be easy to miss the dynamics that are going on here. The uh, initial part of it shows us and reminds us the ones who uh, the ones who should love. If you look at verses 31 and 32 there in the passage, you see two folks, two groups of people represented. One is the priests, kind of the people like me, I guess you would say, the professional religious folks coming by. He doesn't do anything to help. In fact, you know, avoids it and gets on his way. The Levites, who would maybe be comparable, I don't know, to the deacons or elders in the church, you know, somebody with a responsibility or a role for the things of of God's people in that way. Levite does the same thing. He avoids the opportunity to love instead of moving towards it. And we don't know why uh, all the reasons. They may have been just in a hurry, these folks. Uh, They may have been concerned, as many have pointed out, that that by coming close to a a dead person, they don't know if he's dead or alive when he's lying along the side of the road, that they might contaminate themselves and then they can't participate in the temple worship when they get there. Then they'd look kind of bad spiritually because they're not going to church that Sunday as they've helped this guy out. Maybe they're afraid. That's probably the most understandable thing. Whoever beat this guy up might come along and beat me up while I'm trying to help him. Maybe they know that if they take a little bit of responsibility, it might lead to more, like it did with the Samaritan. And it took a little bit out of his pocket to help this guy and some time and some energy. Maybe, like I honestly feel sometimes, and maybe you would admit, when encountering need among those around me, just don't give a rip. Maybe that's what's going on. With these folks, regardless, Jesus is contrasting them and he's contrasting them against an interesting figure 
to choose as the hero of this story. If you know a little bit about the Samaritans, now it's confusing because in our culture, when we say good Samaritan, that person is a good Samaritan, it's warm, fuzzy vibes, right? That's nothing but positive. For the people of God in Jesus' day, Samaritan was, uh, was a, a disappointing uh, group of humanity, would be one way to put it. It goes back to the Old Testament times when the people of Israel had been hauled off into exile in Babylon and Assyria. Uh, sort of a, a, a comprehensive nationwide discipline program. Time out, if you will. Uh, parents in here can understand that. Of uh, the people of God going to Syria and Babylon. And, and some of the Jews stayed behind, though. A few remained. But they didn't have the temple anymore. That had been destroyed. And they didn't have the leadership of their worship. And so the worship that they developed was kind of uh, corrupt, kind of a hybrid. wasn't really the authentic thing. And then, of course, they, as other groups of people moved into that area when the other Jews were hauled off, there was a mixing of uh, ethnicities and backgrounds. So the Samaritans are, to most of the Jews at the time, a sort of uh, spiritual and cultural half-breed uh, people. So when Jesus says and has the Samaritan be the hero of this story, he's really meaning to rock our world. And it's, it's hard to get till we kind of get back in that mindset because Samaritan doesn't mean the same thing to us today. And then we look and see the tremendous love that this Samaritan shows going out of his way, putting himself at risk, reaching out, even expending some of his own resources And the point that Jesus is making is this. To the degree that the Samaritan actually loves as God commands, he is more of a true Israelite than the Hebrew of Hebrews. That's the challenge because the lawyer ain't getting it. He's not seeing what's being shown to him in the mirror. And so Jesus wants to just show him something that's totally out of his realm And sort of shock him into seeing the challenge of God's call to love. And he wants to do the same thing for us today. And so the question for us is, number one, are we experiencing God's love? Have we come to recognize the tremendous work that he's done for us? Sending a redeemer, a rescuer for us that we need desperately. We have no hope for outside of that one. That's the starting place. And then out of that, and and maybe a way to sort of test that is, if that's at work in Chris Peter's life, am I seeing anything of this type of love that the Samaritan demonstrates? Anything where I'm going out of the way, where I'm putting my time, my energy, myself at risk, anything where I'm really concerned about another person, even though I might have other priorities, is that happening someplace in my life? And and if not, we might, you know, back the truck up and say, well, where, where's Jesus at work? What's, what's happening there that this kind of love isn't being shown in my life? Does this passage, I guess, by way of application, uh, mean that we ought to stop and try to help some people that we see along the way in life that, that need some help? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does, does it mean that for the neighbors and friends and folks that we see around us and maybe family members that are uh, struggling with marriage difficulties, struggling with depression issues, struggling with addiction, struggling financially, struggling with eating disorders, struggling with whatever, that uh, there's a call here for us to uh, 
realize we can't meet every need, but to, to see those needs in front of us and, and to move into those situations through God's power and love. Absolutely. That's part of what the gospel is meant to do uh, for us. Uh, uh, does it mean we as a church should continue to help and serve that way? You know, it's interesting, this uh, deacon fund that the, when we kind of got established as a church a couple years ago, we put together this uh, ministry. And, and most of what happens with the deacon fund is is really sort of confidential because it might be folks in our congregation that are in need. Maybe there's a transition between work. Maybe there's a medical need. Maybe some of these things are, are private and so forth. And I'm, I'm thankful for the way that we've been able to help some of those needs both in and outside our church. I, there is one uh, recently I just wanted to read you by way of encouragement and probably by by challenge, by good encouragement for us uh, from somebody outside our church that we, we heard about that's in our, our local presbytery here. It's actually a, a minister who works as a counselor and his uh, his wife's going through some difficulties with with cancer. And I think they've had significant financial setbacks and they had a car total recently. I can't even remember all that happened, but it was once I got to the third or fourth thing on the list of all the problems they had, I said, oh, that's, we need to figure out what we can do. And the, the deacons heard about this. And, and this is just a little note that this lady uh, sent back, the, uh, the wife, who's the woman dealing with cancer, about the impact and power that, uh, that, that this kind of Samaritan love can, can show. She says, thank you so much. This is directed to our church leadership. We received the help and wanted you to know how much we appreciate it. What a weight it takes off my shoulders as the bookkeeper of the family. We're so thankful for how the body of Christ has walked alongside us in this difficult journey. When I feel good, I love to turn the cancer into a little bit of a comedy routine. But after a treatment, when I feel bad, I can't think that anything is funny about it. Two treatments down with symptoms from the second coming any minute, but I'm almost a third of the way through. As I put on Facebook, the Lord will fight for me. So thankful to be his. That's just a little bit of of how God can use us, can use the body of Christ to bless, to support, to strengthen, to show love to those who are around us. And in that sense, it's a privilege for us to be a part of. Now, I want to conclude by talking about something that I I think relates to this passage, but also has kind of been brought to our front doorstep, I guess you would say, as a church, as a church body, as a collection of churches in our denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America. And uh, I I guess I'll say, first off, and I don't don't think there's anything that I would say in here that would be terribly difficult for the young ones to hear. Probably most of it will go over their heads. But I want to talk a little bit uh, directly about how we can love our culture and uh, its desire to uh, proclaim uh, same-sex relationships as a positive uh, and good thing. So, parents, if you want to step out for go to the water fountain for five minutes, if you think that would be a good thing, uh, by all means, feel free to do that. There will be no uh, judgment of you for walking out here for a, a few minutes, and we welcome you to come back in, in in five minutes. But I want to talk about this because I think one of the toughest issues, and honestly, I'd rather not talk about this. I'd rather, uh, you know, not have to speak to this issue and how the love of Christ relates to it. But I think one of the hard things for us to figure out in our time, and we don't usually talk about this issue or these even types of things in our culture, but sometimes the word of God uh, tells us to. 
And I even put down a quote by Martin Luther, the reformer that's in your worship guide. If you want to read it, I was convicted by this uh, this week as I read it. He said this, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing him, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Here's the challenge. When the Christian church is called to love, our love is also informed by truth and by holiness that God describes uh, for us and lays out for us. And uh, last week, two weeks ago, as I was out at the gathering nationally of uh, our church body nationally, the Presbyterian Church in America, the same week going on in another part of the country, um, another denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, was meeting in another uh, location. And it made national news media, one, because they confused our group of churches together with that other group of churches. And the other group of churches uh, caught the attention of the national media because they essentially approved of uh, non-celibate people with homosexual desires serving as clergy. And for the clergy to also officiate uh, so-called gay marriages. So this wasn't an issue that I went to look for. It just landed on our front doorstep because of the confusion. Some of y'all even emailed me and said, okay, what's what happened here at our national gathering? That wasn't us. It was this other denomination, but the media actually confused the two. And so I think it's a good place to talk about this today for just a a minute, because here's the storyline in case um, in case you you maybe haven't been tracking with some of these issues. The storyline is this. That, um, that our identity, really all of us, not just those dealing with same-sex attraction, but all of us, our identity is, is actually more, this is the cultural storyline, is actually more in uh, that sexuality than it is in our image uh, bearers, being image bearers of God, or in the work of Christ in our life. And so the storyline is that even though the church for you know, 2,000 years has been pretty clear about calling all of us in whatever areas of sin, maybe it's greed, maybe it's uh, heterosexual uh, lust. I've got my my list here. You can go down the list of them. Jealousy, self-righteousness, pride, unjustified anger, all of those things. The Bible, again, holds up a mirror before us in our face and says, hey, you need you need salvation. You need mercy. You need Christ to change you in all these different areas of life and emotions in your actions, in your words, and even in this area of our uh, sexuality. That's what the message of the gospel is. And it it at first brings bad news, right? Because it says to Chris Peters, for instance, hey, part of you, Chris Peters, is somebody who has heterosexual attractions outside of your marriage relationship. Part of you, Chris Peters, is that you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Part of you, Chris Peters, is that you... Think you need some more material things and want those even though God hasn't provided them for you. Part of your problem, Chris Peters, is that you're way too angry about things that are out of your control. And that you worry about things that God has entrusted that he's going to take care of. Part of you, Chris Peters, is even uh, so wretched as to have jealousy 
towards other ministers in their so-called ministry success. And part of you, Chris Peters, is like this passage reminds us that you don't really care for the needy around you. So the gospel brings very bad news to all of us. It's confronting. And then it brings incredibly good news. And you cannot get to the good news until you have heard the bad news. It's hard to hear the bad news. None of us likes to be confronted with anything that would be wrong with us. But it's like going to the doctor. We can avoid going to the doctor and we can say we're not sick. And, and, and there might even be things that show us that we're sick and we try to ignore them. And we might ignore them for years and years. But you go to the doctor, they've got some bad news first. And then they're able to give the good news of where the healing comes. And so all I want to say about this matter in our culture, and again, I feel like it's sort of been brought to our front doorstep, is that uh, as Christians, we ought to have a sort of radical love for everybody in our culture. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. But that love comes with truth and with holiness as well. That's calling all of us, whatever our struggles, whatever areas where we would turn away from God, to come back, to see mercy, to see grace, to see what Jesus has done for us, that we might be uh, restored to relationship with God, have the hope of heaven, and then see his transforming power at work within us. I know that's a controversial thing. It's going to become even more controversial unless God blows some winds of revival and turns some things around significantly. It's going to become more and more difficult to profess that message on that particular issue. But I think that's part of what Christ would call us in uh, loving in a reflection of his love for us that is about who we are. Again, this passage about who we are to be as those who love and not so much about picking and choosing Uh, who it is that we would love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us and bless us. That uh, the things that this passage has taught us, uh, things that are very challenging for us, that you would uh, direct us, equip us, strengthen us to glorify you. I thank you for being with us in our time in your word today. I thank you that you give us truth so that we can know the way that you would have us to go and that we might know what love looks like, love that comes with grace, but also comes with truth. And Lord, that we might be a blessing to other people in a in a genuine and authentic way that fits with who you are and fits with your redemptive work and not with the shifting winds of our culture. Help us to love in that way. Help us to love boldly, sacrificially, because you first loved us. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.